Here we go again, Dan. We're back. It's been a while, but uh, do you want to introduce what you're drinking tonight? I just have to say I very much enjoyed that kind of cartoonish pop of your bottle there. That was a lovely noise. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got a. Um, I've been drinking kind of the cheap beers recently, but I've got a bit of a fancier one. Uh, Great Lakes Brewery, one of my favourites. It's the Forlorn Unicorn New England IPA. Well, oh, you and your bitter ones again. I um, I still have a couple of those lingering Christmas packs, and so I've gone back to Scotland uh, with Belhaven Breweries, uh, Wee Heavy Rich Scottish Ale. Uh, I like Belhaven because it's uh, brewed in Dunbar, and that's where... I, my family's not from Dunbar, but they are Dunbars, if that makes sense. The Dunbars kind of split up in Scotland. A couple ended up in Inverness, and that's where my half of the family's from. And... Uh, but anyway, uh, Dan, you are off the hook today. We are not going to indulge your um, your shame at the uh, at, at being English and your once mighty English empire. We're doing someone else's former colony today. Um, we're going for the first time. I'm very excited. Africa and Mali. Not a lot of people think of of Mali uh, when they think of Africa. They sort of think of you know South Africa, obviously, the, the once World Cup hosts. And since neither of us have been there, uh, we'll turn to someone who has, and he is the voice of the Colorado Rapids, Mr. Richard Fleming. Richard, glad to, glad to have you on with us. Yeah, no, delighted. Thanks, thanks for having me along, guys. Um, I, I'll, I have got some beers here, but uh, I've got a long night ahead of me, so I, I might just... Uh, Ease into uh, ease into one of them as uh, as, we're, as we're talking. Not a problem. And so, uh, you were in Mali uh, two thousand two. You've done a number of you've, your resume is quite impressive. A number of Africa Cup of Nations. Uh, you've been to North Korea. I remember we met at a Gold Cup when Canada played Panama in Denver, and that's where you mentioned you've done a number of Africa Cup of Nations, and it piqued my interest. So, for your first one in two thousand and two, how did you end up going there? Uh, well, I'd, I'd been with the BBC for seven or eight years at that point. I'd been in local radio and then uh, and then regional television and radio uh, in, in the south of England and then joined the BBC World Service in April of 2000. So that was just after the Nigeria-Ghana co-hosted in 2000. So I missed out on that one. Um, but then 2002 came around and um, I found out probably about six months before that I would be on the on the, the, the flight to, to Mali. I had no idea where it was. I knew it was was in Africa. I was, you know, a, a, a novice with regards um, at the African continent. Um, I had heard all of these wonderful stories of the tournament. Um, my daughter, who is uh, 20 this year, um, was around six months, five or six months old at the time. And so I departed to, to Mali in uh, in the January of, of 2002. And um, those were the, that very first tournament um, that, I, that I covered. Uh, were, we were doing every single game. We were doing commentary for the BBC World Service on every single game. So we were doing all of the group matches, uh, knockout stages, and then, then obviously the finals. So we would be doing a game um, almost every day. And so just um, from a preparation standpoint, um, and certainly with a lot of names that I was unfamiliar with, uh, a lot of teams that I was unfamiliar with, um, and the big challenge for me really was um, not only the pronunciation, but, but also, you know, understanding that the audience 
were, were you know, they, they were the, the heroes. So I'm, I'm commentating and trying to not to in, insult with my pronunciation, you know, players from Nigeria and Ghana and, uh, I mean, obviously South Africa. Um, I'm not sure if Zimbabwe were there in that one, but, you know, Senegal and Ivory Coast and Egypt and Tunisia, Algeria, all of these these teams. Uh, I remember that year they had uh, Democratic Republic of Congo uh, and you may recall the former Colchester and the Newcastle player Lamana Lua Lua, um, who had actually three names. It was it was Lamana Trezor Lua Lua. Well, every single player on the DR Congo team had four names. They were all kind of similar to that. So, trying to commentate at any pace at all and not stumbling was was one of my big fears. And then you see that the DR Congo team. Uh, I remember I did a couple of the, the, those games and these the floodlights weren't great, the pitches weren't great. I remember, um, and again in my naivety, I, I'd see these guys walking around with what looked like pesticide packs on the back of their uh, on the back of their bibs, and they were spraying the grass. I said, well, you know, what are they doing? They, you know, they're giving it a bit of a bit of a boost, you know, to, to get the grass to grow. Kind of late stages. They went, no, they're painting it green. <laughs> so all the patches, all the bald patches on the pitch, they were they were spraying green, so it looked quite nice for television. And actually, when I went down a few days later, these these pitches were rutted; they were terrible. So if you can imagine, it was like um, some of those those lower league football stadiums where the corners are a little bit dim; the floodlights have not fully covered the entire pitch. And you add to that the fact that DR Congo wore black and white stripes and they had I think they were like gold numbers on the back but kind of dimly kind of light light gold light yellowish it was almost impossible from a distance to tell who they are and then on one game they all came out with their hair bleached blonde I couldn't tell who was who I honestly couldn't tell who was who from a distance I was trying to identify them with boots and so for me as an introduction just from a technical standpoint, never mind, you know, the culture and the language and, and just obviously the abject poverty in that country. It was it was a whirlwind. It was a, it was a huge learning curve for me and I, I had to learn pretty quickly. You've reminded me of the um, I think it was the 2002 Euros when the Romanian team all bleached their hair blonde. I think, mm. you know, yeah. you know, just like we're, we're one and, you know, we're one and all. We're all the same. I think it's that kind of a team spirit kind of a thing, isn't it? It's quite interesting. Um one thing I wanted to ask about is, like, obviously, before these big events, be it Olympics, World Cups, and stuff like that, they make a big fuss about making it extremely fan friendly by making all the transport links great. Um, was this the case in Mali? And I mean, so you know, could Nigeria, for example, travel easily between Bamako and Mopti uh, during the group stages, or was it a little bit more difficult? It was. It was a flight. Um... I remember my I, I was based in Bamako for most of the tournament. I did go up to Mopti and I think and, and I went to Kai uh, a few times. And and the journey to Kai and there's a, there's a fantastic story behind this. Um, I'd been downtown to Bamako. I'd been in the city centre a few times. We'd gone to bars and restaurants, and I mean the people were just phenomenally friendly. Just the warmth. I mean a lot of poverty. I mean I, I think. I don't know where they, they rank now on the United Nations kind of poverty list, but it was about the, the second or third poorest country in Africa. And it, it really was. And you, you could see that. Um, 
but they were the most giving, the most friendly and the warmest people uh, that I'd ever met. And I had, yeah, as I say, I had no um, preconceptions going into this tournament. I really didn't know what I was, I was going into. Um, and so I was just wonderfully taken aback by, by the warmth of the people. But I, I remember being in the city centre in Bamako and seeing the train leave, leave Bamako station. And it looked like, um, I'm, I'm trying to describe it, it was clearly overcrowded. There were people on the roof, there were people hanging on to the outsides, uh, literally kind of heads poking out the top of the window inside. It, I mean, it was teeming with people. And, and so when they said to me, they said, look, you've got to go to Kai, you and, and, and the engineer, the, the, the studio manager, you're going to, to do commentary. And I forget which game it was I was doing. Uh, I think it was Cameroon. It was a Cameroon game uh, in, in the, the last round of, of the group stages. We went back a few days later for South, uh, South Africa, Mali. Um, so I think it was Cameroon, Cameroon, Senegal, I want to say, maybe. Not. I think it was definitely Cameroon. Um, and so they said, look, you've got to go, you, you're going to Kai, you're going to, to do this game. Um, you've got three ways of getting there. You could go on the train. I said, OK. I said, well, I've seen I've seen the train. I don't. I think they were playing with me. I, I said I, to be honest, I don't. And, and I I'm I'm like I'm trying to act cool, knowing it was my first cup of nations. I'm thinking, well, it, is this the sort of thing we do? Do we just kind of immerse ourselves into the culture and just go with it, or do we act all very well? I'm the BBC. I can't be treated like this. And so, the, 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 I said, well, the, the train. I said, well, I, I saw I saw the train. That they said, well. The, the the disadvantage with the train is if you don't get a seat, you, you know you're on you're on the outside, and they regularly derail. I said, I said okay, okay. Well, I said, well, well, that's <laughs> not that's not good. They said, well, there's also you can go by car, but the terrain is a bit difficult. It's got to be a four by four, and um, in, actually, a couple of days later, one of our BBC colleagues, he was I uh, think he was one of the correspondents from that part of the world. He he came into our into our um, accommodation to our, our hotel, and he was all bloodied and dusty and all beaten up. I said, well, I said, what's happened to him?" They went, "Oh, he was coming from Kai, and he's, he had a blowout in the four by four, and they the the four by four roll." I went, "Well, let's just check the four by four off the list, shall we?" That I'm not travelling by rail. I'm not going in the car, so that leaves me with with a flight. I'm I'm, I'm flying there. So we arrived at the airport. Uh, it was myself and a, and a South African colleague who was like six foot six. So he, he and I sat at the front at the bulkhead. So he had the leg room. We had the both both the teams on with us, um, and oh, that's right, it was DR Congo, DR Congo, and one other team. Because I remember uh, Lua Lua was with was uh, I got chatting to him, um, and there were a few journalists on there with us as well. It was like a I don't know an eighty seater, hundred hundred seater. Uh, aircraft. It was Algerian. I remember that it was an Algerian aircraft. Uh, I don't think the Mali um, uh, aviation had a great safety record. <laughs> so we, we, we're sitting on the tarmac, ready to depart, just ready to taxi. The doors were about to be closed, and then a load of dignitaries from the Confederation of African Football turned up. Little military. Just, I mean, I, I'm looking across. They turned up at the door. I say, okay, and. There were, you know, people from the executive committee, from the organising committee. There's about 10 of them turned up, but they had lady friends with them. Well, this colleague of mine from, from South Africa worked for Reuters and he knew, he knew all of them. He knew all of these executives he's, and he's there sitting and whispering in my ear saying, well, that's not his wife. 
Oh, no, that's not his wife. Well, that's not... Well, I know he's not married. I'm going, oh, my word. They then started to turf off the journalists. Luckily, we were kind of BBC and Reuters because they needed their seats. So these journalists had to get the next flight or they had to go in a four-by-four or they, they had to find their way on the road. I mean, it was just calamitous. So me and my, my, my engineer arrived and it was this tiny little air airstrip. And that's all it was. It was, it was a tarmac, just, just the basic. And it was a brick building, a brick outbuilding. And you could have walked around it. There was no fence. There was no security. It was like a, a domestic, um, almost like a, a, an air training uh, facility. So we all got off the aircraft. We walked. We kind of made a thing of walking through this building. They checked our passports. Was like we've just come on an internal flight. And there's the teams went off on the team buses to the stadium, and there was this media bus. So brilliant! Oh, this is this is good. I mean, Kai is it's in the middle of nowhere, um, but at least they've laid on this media bus. So we got on, took us to the stadium. We did the game, and with that, and they'd said, look. If you're not back here by seven o'clock, we're taking off without you, and we're not back till Sunday. Well, this was Thursday. <laughs> it's, this, is the, this is the only flight in and out for the next four days because this airstrip had only been built for the tournament. So we went, okay, yeah, yeah, no problem. The game finishes about half five. It's twenty minutes, twenty-five minutes from from the centre of town. We'll make it no problem. Get on the media bus. We'll be as good as gold. Anyway, after the game, we're all wandering out and we're waiting for the media bus and we're looking around and waiting for this bus and never materialised. So we're waiting about five. I thought, well, we've got plenty of time. He might be just held up. I'm thinking, we well, held up. There's, there's no traffic. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing in this town. So I'm like, OK, 10 minutes went by. got a little bit worried until eventually in my pigeon French, I wandered over to this, uh, this steward at the stadium. I said, look, any idea where the, you know, for, for the journalists, any idea where the media bus is? And he looked at me blankly. He said, media bus? What, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, the fellow that brought us to the stadium. He said, that's not the media bus. I said, well, well what the heck was it? He said, that's just a local guy. Did you not tip him? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, well, he's not coming back then. Like, oh, for crying out loud. No. So, like anybody that's seen the movie Planes, Trains and Automobiles, we all then realised the situation and all kind of tiptoed off whistlings in different directions, knowing we needed to find a way to the airport, because the time was ticking, and this aircraft was taken off with or without us. So we, we wandered off, walked down the road, rounded a corner, and there was this old battered Ford Anglia. For those that remember, the Ford Anglias was at the end of this queue of about 20 guys waiting to get in. And... I, what I hadn't said is we were the only white guys, so we stood out. Well, there's this big, burly black guy at the front of the queue, and he looks down this queue, and he spots me and my colleague, and he beckoned us forward. We're like, oh, no, what's going on? What's happened now? And he said, BBC? We went, yeah. He hauled the two guys who were in the car, who thought they were going to get a ride to the airport, he hauled them out of the car and shoved us in. So we're in, I'm in the front seat... And I'm about seven or eight inches lower than the driver because my seat has got no padding. I'm sat on the springs. My colleague behind is sat um, directly behind me. We're driving out. We had to drop another guy off at this hotel. 
and then we carried on out towards the airport. We thought, brilliant, we're, you know, we're, we're great, we're, we're, we're on our way. We're driving along, we can see the airport lights in the distance. That Once we got outside the town, there was no light pollution whatsoever. We realised that the guy had no headlights. We couldn't see a thing. So we're looking through the gloom, it's pitch black, and he had to... And, and what we then realised is, he's gone off the beaten track. Because the road disappeared off to the right, he's carried straight on. So he's driving as the crow flies to this, to this airstrip, to this airport, because he'd never had any reason to go out there. He didn't know where he was going. So he could see the glow of the, of the airport lights in the distance, and he's just, God damn it, he's just aiming for them. So we're going over this rough terrain, we're bumping up and down, we're screeching to a halt, and there's like a 10-foot drop in front of us with this thin yellow tape across and me and my friend me and my colleague were like we we might have got in the car i'm not sure we're going to make it still i mean dead or alive so after what seemed like an eternity we hit terra firma we were there back on the road until my colleague tapped me on the shoulder he said i don't want to worry you he said my floor's all rusted. I've got no floor it was like a flintstones car he said and he said and secondly I can see the airport lights. We're on the runway. I went, what? <laughs> we are driving up the runway of this airport. So I'm, I'm yanking this kid and I'm saying, you know, move across, get across. We're on the bloody runway. We're likely to get hit by the only yeah. aircraft coming in for the next four days. So we went off to the side and this, we, we stopped at the, there was a, a fire station there. The, the fire chief hauled him out and I was going, journalist, journalist. And he, and he allowed us, we got onto the flight and, and made it back. But um, yeah, I mean, that, we went back a few days later and a colleague had malaria. We got turfed out of our hotel. We had to stay in a half built villa, um, concrete floors, no glass in the window frames. It was, um, but we loved it. I mean, I mean what an experience. experience. It was phenomenal. Well, I was, I was just going to say, I mean, for your first African Cup of Nations, you said you knew nothing of Mali. I was going to ask you about culture shock. I guess there was some. Oh, I mean, tremendously so. I, I mean, if, for me, it was a huge eye-opener. And, and I'll never forget, um, the second time we went back to Kai, um, Actually, and no, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell the other story. Did it you is, tip it him is. the second time? We, well, we went back to Kai a second time to do the knockout stage. We did Mali, South Africa, and Mali went through. It was tremendous. There was, you know, 15,000 seater stadium um, and, and, and just this town, which is right on the border of Senegal, um, was it just came to a standstill. Uh, you know, people were sleeping outside under the stars and we arrived and we were there for two or three days. So when we arrived, we went off to we we um, didn't check into our accommodation at first, um, went off to training, did a bit of training, came back um, and one of our colleagues had gone down with malaria. So they had to be isolated in a room on their own. And these were like um, brick huts. They were like little individual pods. Um, so I was in with a colleague um, stone cold showers, uh, a, a generator that sounded, it was like this industrial generator, mosquitoes, I mean the heat, you couldn't really sleep, the noise, um, and, and so we got up the next day, went off to do the game, uh, and I think we were there for training the next day, went to do some more, get some more content for the BBC, came back and we'd been, the, the guy had given our rooms away, so what, 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 you, what did you do that for? And he got a better offer or something, so we, we had nowhere to stay. So we're like, we're, we're going to be sleeping under... We are literally going to be sleeping under the stars. 
So there was about four or five of us from the BBC until eventually we got hold of the organising committee and said, look, this is our situation. We're, we're, and, and obviously they, they realised that BBC journalists sleeping outdoors was probably not going to be a good look for, for, for the tournament. So they found us a villa. They said, well, we've got you, what, the organising committee are building these villas which are going to be the legacy afterwards. Um, so you can stay there. I thought, well, I mean, it's fantastic. We're going to stay in a villa. We're going to stay in a brand new villa. I mean, it was, it, was, it was that new, it hadn't been finished. So we stayed at this place, which had a TV uh, in, 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 in the, the, the lounge. It had some wooden chairs and some crates. The, the bedrooms, and I use that in, a, in loose, loose terms, it literally, they, they had no glass. The, the windows were, were all, obviously, had been built. The whole structure of the house had been built. But there was no electricity. There was no. There was there was running water, but it was cold. Um, there was no glass in the window frame. So in the mornings, we'd be woken by locals just leaning on the window frame, talking, having it striking up a conversation with us. So, <laughs> so we're, we're lying, lying on, on the these concrete <laughs> floors, um, and you know, backache and like waking up. I mean, you literally wrapped yourself up into your into your sleeping bag and zipped it right up to avoid all the mosquitoes. And then I remember the next day we got up and it was the day of the game and there was these two young lads, these local lads, must have been about nine or ten, and they kept on, over the, the course of a few hours, kept on coming by and saying, you know, wanting to, 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 to shine our shoes. I said, well, I'm only wearing trainers, so it's, it's not really going to work. But we, we, we went back here and we, we felt terrible that we weren't able to give them some, some money and, 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 you know, they were being entrepreneurial and, and looking to work. So we went back inside and we had a couple of tickets for the game. So me and my colleague chased them down and they thought they were in trouble and they were looking really kind of shocked and a bit kind of, um, you know, furtive. And, um, and my colleague who spoke French, he said, you know, you promise not to give them away. Don't give them away. Don't go and sell them. You know, have you ever been to a football game before? No, no. Would you like to go to today's game? And the tears that were streaming down these little lads' faces, I will never, never forget just these... These small moments that, that we were able to kind of capture uh, was fantastic. So just in just and, and for me, it was just after Christmas and, you know, everything's about materialism back in the UK. And it was, you know, if you didn't get this and you didn't get that. And, and here I was in a country where they had nothing. I mean, they literally had nothing. But what they had, they were prepared uh, to share with you. But that very same colleague who'd done about five or six Africa Cup, Cup of Nations, and he knew, he knew the lay of the land. He knew you avoid tap water, you avoid salads, you avoid fruit. Well, we were going from Mopti to Kai for this second trip because we were meeting up with colleagues, and we had to refuel in Bamako. Um, and, and, and we were, we were travelling because um, the only way we could get there was with the engineers from, I think it was the, the uh, TV people that they'd brought in from France, they had their own aircraft, and it was an old Russian aircraft. And when I got up close to it, it was like gaffer tape, and there was bits missing, and I'm like, I'm not getting on that. They said, well, it's a heck of a walk. I'm like, I mean, this was a, a white-knuckle ride. Anyway, about half an hour before we got on this flight, this colleague of mine said, I, I, don't, I don't feel too good. He said, I think I've eaten something dodgy. I went, oh, for goodness sake, Martin. I said... You're an old, you're an old hand at this. You, you know, you should know better. He said, "I know." He said, "I think, I think it was that salad." I said, "What are you doing eating salad?" He said, "Well, I just my my, my my tummy's feeling all a bit, just a bit ropey." 
I said, well, we'll get on the aircraft. You can, you know, you can go to the toilet on, on the aircraft. So anyway, we got on this aircraft and he's, he's struggling. He was all, he kind of doubled up. He's not wanting to just, he's not wanting to relax, shall we say. So we got on the aircraft and I, I just tapped at the pilot, who was also one of the engineers. I tapped him on the shoulder and said, any chance of, can Martin go and use the toilet? He said, oh, sorry, mate. He said, we put all our equipment in there. There's no way he's getting into, into the, the toilet. toilet. So <laughs> I, had to go and break, I had to go and break the news to him. I'm like, Martin, we've got about an hour, mate. Can, can you hold? He went, are you, are you kidding me? And now at this point, I can see he's starting to sweat. There's, there's beads of sweat coming down his brow. So we're sat on this aircraft and it was bumpy. There was a lot of turbulence. Well, of course, every bump, I'm just watching him going, oh, did you, oh, 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 oh. I'm trying to be sympathetic while at the same time finding it hilarious. Somebody else is suffering. I was, I was struggling to, to show any kind of sympathy without breaking into a smile. But the funniest bit was yet to come. Because as we stopped and we landed at Bamako Airport, was was for the refueling, he had probably a hundred yard dash from the aircraft to the airport to go to the toilets. Well, it was almost as if his ankles were shackled the way that he was running. <laughs> I lost it. I absolutely lost it. I was doubled up on the tarmac. I was cre- there was tears were streaming down my face thankfully he didn't have the energy to turn around to see how i was because he was focused on going to the bathroom because he would have seen me doubled up on the floor showing absolutely zero sympathy for his cause <laughs> that, and that was a schoolboy error that was my, my first trip to mali and i didn't make that mistake <laughs> superb absolutely such a good story uh, i got tears in my eyes um, I know that Mali's very proud of their diverse music culture, and you mentioned going to you know a couple of bars as well. Um, what was the nightlife like that you experienced over there? Uh, phenomenal! It really was. It was colourful. It was vibrant. Um, you know, the West African uh, people are, are very, very colourful. The music, and I think I, I remember, and I'm trying to remember what his name. Kater, I think it was Kater, because obviously they had Sedu Kater who was at Barcelona, and I think it was Kater was um, was one of the great musicians, um, and he was he was at, I think it was at the opening game, which I remember was Liberia, and George Weyer was playing for Liberia. It was Liberia against Mali um, at the uh, the twenty fifth of March Stadium, which I think was their the date of their independence. And um, he was interviewed before the game by, by one of my colleagues in, in, in French. Um, but the stories, I mean, the stories that I, I may have to leave for another day because they might not be broadcastable. I don't want to get any colleagues into trouble. But the, the, the funniest thing I ever, um, or the, the, the most, one of the most interesting characters I, I bumped into was a guy called Frank Lord. And he was from the north of England. He was a former, I think he, he played in the, in the 50s and 60s for, for the likes of Rochdale and Burnley. And he had a broad Lancashire accent. And he was a tall guy. He must have been in his 60s, late 60s, maybe then early 70s. But he was the, the Manchester United scout for Africa. Uh, but he was based in Cape Town in, in South Africa. So he asked me, because the BBC used to give us a thick 
directory. It was all of the, and they did all the research. I mean, obviously, it's a lot easier these days. To, but you know, back in two thousand and two, the internet was still a little bit sketchy. Certainly, it didn't have the depth of information. Um, on, on, on some of the, the smaller African nations, uh, some of those that obviously played in Europe, uh, the European-based players, uh, certainly Nigeria, Cameroon, uh, Ivory Coast, um, were, were a little bit more easier to, 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 uh, uh, you know, to research. But the BBC had a research department and they would give you this thick directory and it scouted all of the players. And he, he said to me, he said, look, any chance you could send that to Sir Alex? I said, to Sir Alex? He said, well, Sir, Sir Alex Ferguson, could you send that to Sir Alex Ferguson? And I'd spoken to a couple of colleagues, Steve Wilson and Simon Brotherton were there, uh, and they'd been asked, I think Arsenal and Chelsea had asked to, to send it to them. I said, yeah, of course, of course, I'll, I'll send it to, to, to Sir Alex, thinking nothing would come of it. So I, when I got back, I, I put it in the post, and, and uh, lo and behold, a, a couple of weeks later, a nice little letter um, comes back from Sir Alex thanking me for for sending it through and personally signed and and that was that so it was just a just this small uh, surreal world and you know I did Tunisia in two thousand and four uh, Egypt two thousand and six Ghana two thousand and eight and my last one uh, was Angola in two thousand and ten I did the World Cup in South Africa uh, in that year as well and then left the BBC in two thousand and eleven they they headed off to uh, to Salford and, and I, I kind of went freelance for a few years before heading out to Colorado but I mean that first one was 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 incredible it was um, I, I did all the games up until the semi-final um, we played in some you know some media games against you know some of the local local stars um, I, I remember dining out um, under the stars we had this fresh fish we went literally it was like this pop-up Barbecue. Some people, the people, opened this, this, these, these, these garages, and, and they got out barbecues and fried the fish up. And we had some cold beers and some of the some of the nicest food that I'd tasted. And it was just just very very special. Um, a, you know, a, a fascinating history. I, I, I'd never realised where Timbuktu was until I went to Mali. And of course, Timbuktu um, is in Mali. And 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 and, and obviously, since um, you know, they've had some real struggles there. Um, in Mali with um, with the insurgents and it's been a real tough history for them but the people were phenomenal uh, some of the football players that have come out of Mali have been sensational and, and my first experience of the Africa Cup of Nations and the chaos that went around it um, I, I spoke to uh, you know uh, Lua Lua and we were on the tarmac waiting to come back from Kai and I tapped him on the shoulder and he was surprised to hear an English voice I said how are you doing he went Oh mate, you from where are you from? I said I'm from I'm from England. Oh, Bramman now. Cool, what I'm and, and he kind of opened up. He, I said, How are things? He went, It's been a nightmare. It's been an absolute nightmare. And I saw him again a couple of years later in Tunisia and I said, How are things going? He went, You never believe it. He said, They're expecting us to sleep two to a bed. He said, I'm sleeping with that bloke over there, and he pointed to one of his teammates. They send him off, send us off to training. He said, The balls are underinflated. We've got a two-hour drive to train. He says, it's an absolute mess. But that was, for me, as a journalist, it was all of just those side stories which were phenomenal. We were in Ghana, and I can tell you this story because colleagues will back me up on it. We were in, in this this apartment, this this hotel. It's quite a, a new hotel. Um, and I remember Kanu, Nwanku Kanu, was, was at Portsmouth at the time. Nigeria went out of the competition and there was all bits in the paper. Harry Redknapp was the manager of Portsmouth. When, you know, when, when can we expect 
Carnu back. Um, well, Carnu, I knew, was staying in the hotel that we were staying in. And he wasn't with his wife, shall we say. So he's staying up what then, what, what subsequently became known as the Carnu Suite. And I'm reading all about in the papers from back, back in, in the UK how Carnu was like, yeah, he's, he's nursing a bit of a calf strain. And I, I don't think it's his, his, his calf that he's strained, pal, to be honest. If anything, he's got groin injury. <laughs> so that, that's, that's going to be the problem with Carnu. And I actually went on BBC Five Live and I said, well, you know, Carnu is, is, um, is here, you know, he's, he's not coming back anytime soon. And, and and I remember, I think it was Jonathan Pierce said, well, we've got Harry Redknapp on the line. Whoa, Harry, is he? Well, yeah, he's coming back. Well, I've heard that he's coming. I said, no, he's not. And he was, he was, he was in Ghana for the next couple of days. Um, but it was just this, it was just the brazen, just, we, they knew that we were journalists, but it was, that was just the, the access coming from the UK where, you know, footballers were kind of kept at arm's length, certainly in the modern, in the modern age, to go out there um, in 2004 in Tunisia, I was in Sfax. And that was, if you remember, that was when Cameroon... Do you remember Cameroon had the all-in-one kit? Yep. Oh, so that the, 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 the shirt and the shorts were all stitched together. So it was an all-in-one. It went against FIFA regulations, but it became a collector's item. So I went to Jeremy, Jeremy Engertap, who was at Chelsea at the time, uh, and a friend of mine, they were staying in the hotel that I was in. A friend of mine for the BBC, his sister was... I think he was it was married to his sister it was some connection anyway I got to interview Jeremy and I got to know him reasonably well and he said I said I said where are you so I'm on the the third floor come to my room so I go to Jeremy's hotel room and Samuel Eto is playing on a Game Boy or whatever he is on the other bed and we're just going back and forth and he's showing me the jersey and I'm like where else would I be invited to I mean Samuel Eto I think he was at Barcelona then or he was one of the Milan sides but just the access to the players that you had for the Africa Cup of Nations made it a journalist's dream. And they were so kind of brazen. It was, they were so kind of um, open with just, just this nonsense. Uh, I think it was Ghana where, it was Ghana where the Benin coach came out. I went, went to interview him. He came rushing out. And he was like, he was looking past me. He said, where, where is he? Where is he? What, 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 what are we talking about? He said, I said, I've just had some guy come in. He said, he's, he's asking me to throw tomorrow's game. He'd been, he'd been approached by a betting syndicate. So I got the first, I got the first interview with him. I said, Can, you know, are you able to talk to the BBC about it? Yeah, yeah. So that became a story. The, the Benin coach was approached in his hotel room by some guy. So just the, the stories that we were able to get, the access that we had, you know, Kola Toure, Yaya Toure, Didier Drogba, all of these, you know, Salomon Kalou, um, all of these great players uh, that, that, that played across Europe at some of the biggest That just clubs. doesn't exist anymore in modern sports culture. <laughs> no, no, the, the, the ability to get that kind of access. I was, I, was, I was in the mix zone getting ready to do a one-on-one interview with Didier Drogba, and he was just walking out after the training session. They were due to play the next day, and, and I saw the rest of the Ivory Coast media pack which numbered about 50, were talking to the coach behind me at the other side of the mix zone. So I thought, brilliant. Nobody, was, nobody saw me. So Drogba walked past. And, and those that know, you know, mix zones, you've got, a, you've got a gate, you've got this fence in between, and they walk, they walk past, and they can choose to carry on if they want to. And I said, Didier, can I have a quick word for the, you know, for, for the BBC? And he kind of looked, he kind of rolled his head a little bit and then wandered over. And I'm thinking, brilliant, I've got my microphone, just about to launch into the first question, when 
all I can explain was this dust bowl of Ivory Coast journalists that had spotted Drogba came piling over. I got hit on the back of the head by a TV camera and I'm having to put my hand against this fence, against this, this fence in front of me to stop me from either kissing or headbutting Didier Drogba, whichever was going to come first. <laughs> and Drogba just took a step back, kind of, he just surveyed the scene and walked off. I'm like, guys, really? Really? I, I was just about to have an interview with Drogba and you, you guys, it was, it was chaos. It was, it was just but wonderful, wonderful memories that, that I'll, I'll cherish for, for the rest of my days. I believe you I believe have to get, going, have to get going, Richard. I've, I have got a, a, a very rare date out with my, with my wife, so I can't disappoint. Well, we'll let you go. That was an absolute thrill. I'm sure we could have gone on and on and on. Next time I'm in Colorado, hopefully, you know, there's a game that brings me out there at some point. We'll have to catch up again. No, absolutely. And thanks, guys. And again, sorry to, if, I, if I rambled on a bit too long. My answers were quite long, so, uh, um, so I do apologize. No, that was immense, Richard. Like, really, really enjoyed that. I was, uh, yeah, had tears in my eyes a couple of times then. We'll hear some more stories. We'll get you on about North Korea maybe one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's, I, I almost didn't get out there, but um, there we go. My wife was, uh, uh, was quite pleased that I did uh, eventually. Well, cheers, Richard. We'll chat again soon. Thanks for joining us. Okay, no problem. Gareth, that was uh, really, really enjoyable. Uh, I, mean, I mean, it was uh, amazing to have somebody who's a lot more professional and doesn't, doesn't drink when he's doing the podcast but also uh, what a phenomenal storyteller I, re- I really can't wait to get him on to talk about Korea sometime oh that would be great and just uh, I mean we always see the the African Cup of Nations as just you know players disappear in January and then they come back and then you don't really think twice about you know what goes on around it and um, if anything it's the kind of thing that I would love to experience just once at least I know, I know. It's, it was kind of a little bit on my wish list before, like as as many things are. But now I feel like it's like top of the pile for me now. I just yeah. the, the the pandemonium. I mean, I, know, I don't know. Obviously, it would change from country to country, but you know, just 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 the stories you get from these experiences, the uh, the eye opening, you know, culture shocks, and um, and you know, I've 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 been lucky enough to you know go to Africa a couple of times and. You know, I can I can speak to uh, you know his experiences, you know, giving those tickets to those kids and seeing the tears roll down their face because, you know, as in Kenya, you can see the you know how, you know, people live, you know, with nothing over there and just the smallest thing and it and it and it just makes their lives. So, uh, you know, that was uh, you know among the hilarious tales that was almost a bit of a tear jerk at that moment for me. Where have you been? You said Kenya. Where else? Uh, but the other one, I don't really count uh, because it was an all-inclusive when I was a kid to Tunisia. <laughs> Although I, I do remember scoring a cracking penalty during a during a tournament there, but that was it. Oh yeah, well yeah, my parents, my parents met in Nigeria. My brother's born in Zimbabwe, and it's I've never been to anywhere on the continent yet, and so it's it's just killing me. So one day, you know, it's it's top of the bucket list, and not you know a lot of people they go to you know Tanzania and and or Kenya or wherever, and they just sort of stick to the the. Uh, the buy the books let's go here here and here get on your safari come back and then you're comfortable i would like to you know that just this richard stories have just sort of increased my interest for let's go do the unexpected and let's let's see what happens and roll with it and uh and we'll take it from there <laughs> <laughs> well maybe 
when all is safe, that's that's what we're going to do, Gav. Well, well, you know, you've got your baby coming. I've got a second baby coming. Baby will just like, oh, see, see you, ladies. We're going to go and do the Africa Cup of Nations. So. Right. That'll be a good time. Should we wrap things up on, on that note? Because we, we, we heard Richard's stories, and now people are just hearing us rambling a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get a bit too excitable. Um, so, yeah, I don't even know what we're talking about next, but we'll, re- we'll record one soon. As always, we, we figure it out as we go along. And, uh, Dan, that, that one will be hard to top, though. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. He's Dan. I'm Gavin. Newspapers on Seats, episode number. Well, I lost count. We just do it because it's fun. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.